This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Derek Armstrong and Word of Grace Community Church. For more information, please visit WOGCC.com. Now it's time to dive into the final chapter of the book of James as Pastor Derek has been leading us through the book of James the last four weeks. There's five chapters, so I get chapter five as he is in Haiti with the team. So before I go any further, let's pray and ask God to bless this time of teaching. Lord, we thank you for this day. God, we just acknowledge your greatness, your goodness, your mercy, your love. It is a gift of grace that we're able to be here right now freely, just worshiping you and going into the word without fear of persecution or fear of our lives. And so, God, I ask that you would help us to be thankful for that. Help us to make the most of this time. Holy Spirit, I ask you to help me say exactly what you once said. I ask you to open hearts to receive truth today and that today you would not allow us to leave this place the way we came, that you would not allow us to hear the sermon and go, oh, that was nice, and then leave, but you would challenge us and confront us and give us the grace to walk out what we hear in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen. Amen. James chapter 5 is where we're going today. This has been a really great series going through the book of James, and I know Pastor Derek has taught a lot on the background of James and who he was talking to. I'm just going to recap and summarize a little bit of that. We need to know that James wrote this letter. The purpose of this letter was to send it to a church, and then they would send it to a church, and they would send it to church. They would pass it around to all the churches in the area. And so James sent this letter, and as we've already gone through chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, we can kind of realize that there's maybe two main groups of people that are being addressed in this letter. As it is going out to the churches, um, some of the things that he says are obviously for people who are legit Christians. They're authentic in their faith. They love God. And so to them, he's encouraging them to endure tribulation and to count it all joy when you're going through trials and tribulations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and when patience is had, it's perfect work. You'll be perfect, lacking nothing. So he's encouraging people who are believers, but then there's this other side of the the coin of the types of things that he's saying that what he says makes us realize that he's also talking to people in the church who might think that they're Christians but are not. And so that's a sobering thought, that this book of James, what we have now is the book of James, this letter that he wrote is either to us an encouragement in the right direction, if we're in the right direction, if we have an authentic relationship with God, it's an encouragement to stick it out, stay with it, keep growing, don't just sit where you're at. And then on the other side, it's you might think you have a relationship with the Lord, and here's some diagnostic questions to ask yourself or some things to look at to really evaluate, do I think I know God when I really don't? Because we saw already that he says things like, um, it's one thing to hear the word, but it's not enough to just hear the word. You have to actually do what you hear. That hearing without doing that if you think that you're good with God just because you come to church and you hear sermons, then he says some pretty harsh wording here. He says, you're deceiving yourself. If you think that you're good with God just because you hear it, he says, you're deceiving yourself. And he says, it's not enough to just hear. You have to actually do what you hear. 
And he goes on in chapter 2 and he talks about how there's people, he addresses people who think, well, I believe in God. I believe, you know, in Jesus. I believe there is a God. So, so we're legit, right? Because we're saved by grace through faith. And he goes on to say, yeah, 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 you're saved by grace through faith. But if you have faith, you will also have works. He's not saying these things to make us go, oh, I need to work, I need to perform, I need to do good so that I can become a Christian. He's holding up this letter to us as a diagnostic to make, the, to make us go, am I acting like a Christian? Not so that I can try and become a Christian, but if I am a Christian, if I legitimately have the Spirit of God inside of me, I will bear fruit of that. I will look like a Christian. So many times Jesus says, you'll know a tree by its what? Its fruit. You'll know a tree by its fruit. If we went out to, uh, I, I'm just going to say somewhere that I'm familiar with, if we went out Highway 32 on the way to Howard's and we swung off and went to Whispering Orchards where they have that interesting sign with the apple going. If we stopped there and wanted to go get some awesome breakfast, you could look out over the orchard at those trees and every single one of us here could go, that's an apple tree. Why? There's apples on the tree. The book of James in chapter 2, the point of chapter 2 is him saying, if you are a Christian, you will have acts that prove, that show, that confirm you are a Christian. If you believe something, you will live in light of that belief. Just like every single one of you, I can tell, believe in gravity. Why? Because you're sitting down. And you're not grabbing the floor or gripping at something out of fear for floating out into outer space. I can see by your actions that you all believe in gravity. Whether you're thinking about gravity right now or not, I can tell by what you're doing that you believe in it. If you believe in Jesus, if you have authentic faith, your actions will confirm and testify. If we went to the Grand Canyon, all of us would be like, wow, this is amazing, this is beautiful, whoa, let's take a selfie and all that kind of stuff. None of us would go like, (laughs) why? Because we believe in gravity. If you're a Christian, if you legitimately believe in God more than just mental assent, if you authentically in your heart believe in God, it affects the way you live, it affects the decisions you make, it affects the way you talk, it affects the way you interact with people, it affects everything. Legitimate and authentic faith overflows into actions, which is why this series has been called An Overflow of Grace. The book of James has a lot of stuff that looks like it would be saying to you, this is how you need to act when that's not it. The book of James is saying, if you have grace inside of you, if you have Christ inside of you, if you have been transformed by the Holy Spirit, that transformation will overflow into actions that look like this. And so, once again, as we get into this last chapter, chapter 5, and you look at it, you've got to ask yourself, he's talking to two categories with these passages. Throughout the book, there's things that he says to people that it's like, oh, he's obviously talking to people who have faith. He's encouraging them to go on in their faith. And then there's the other side of, He's talking to people, trying to get them to go, oh, maybe I don't have legit faith. Maybe I don't legitimately have an authentic relationship with the Lord. So let's look at James chapter 5. I'm in the ESV. If you are here today and you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back that are the same translation if you want to follow along. Um, ESV, 
James chapter 5, starting, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 1. He says, Come now, you rich. All right, some of us just got uncomfortable. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who have mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He did not resist you. Now, we'll pause there after verse 6 for a second. Because... Once again, if we don't put things in context, when you read Scripture, what's the most important thing? That you put it in context. When you think about this, the fact that this book, this letter he wrote, is hitting a group that has two types of people in it. It has godly people in the church and ungodly people in the church who think they're godly. So he's saying a lot of things in this book to make ungodly people go, oh, wait, maybe I'm not godly. And so this passage right here that he just that we just went through is not to say if you're rich, you're going to hell. It's not the point of it. He's not saying if you're rich that you don't know God and the day of judgment is coming upon you. Because what we can also see in context of the entire Bible, right? We don't just look at one verse or we don't just look at one chapter or even one book. We have to put it all in context of the greater picture. And if you look through the whole Bible from beginning to end, there are people that fall into four categories. Those four categories are, there are godly people who are poor. There are godly people who are rich. There are ungodly people who are poor. And there are ungodly people who are rich. So this passage is not telling us to be rich is to be ungodly. He's trying to confront people that think they're godly, that their heart, their God, is actually their riches. Well, Pastor Stephen, who are those people, the breakdown of the godly and ungodly, rich and poor? Like I said, firstly, there's the godly poor. Um, Jesus' family was poor. They were very godly, obviously. God gave him his son through the Virgin Mary. They were a poor family, but they were godly. Jesus himself said so himself. He was poor. And I don't think we're going to have a debate on whether or not he was godly, right? Because he's kind of God. So, um, so Jesus, poor but godly. Um, there was other people. Ruth. Ruth is a very, very popular character uh, in the Old Testament. She was poor but a very godly woman. Um, there were widows and orphans throughout Scripture. And today, people that don't have a lot of money but are godly people. This, I mean, it can even be the single mom who is struggling to make ends meet, but is trying her best to honor God with her family, with her kids, with her life, and to take care of her kids. There are people who are poor but are godly. Also in Scripture, we see people that are godly but are rich on the other side of that. Um, the, the example of those, we've all heard of Father Abraham and many sons. We're not going to do the song, don't worry. Abraham, filthy, stinking rich. He had a lot of possessions. He was very blessed, very rich. He was very godly. He was called the father of the faith. He's the father of the nation of Israel. Abraham was a godly man that was rich. There's another guy a few books later named Job. 
was the richest guy in his entire area, his entire region. He was rich, but he was also godly. Lost it all, got it all back, but he was a rich man that was godly. There were godly kings like Josiah that were rich, that were also godly men. And you're thinking, Pastor Stephen, these are all Old Testament, and the Old Testament can be type and shadow and pictures. Well, let's hop over to the New Testament. We got Joseph of Arimathea, a very rich man who donated a a rich man's tomb for Jesus. There, um, there is Lydia, who is a godly woman who funded a lot of gospel work in the New Testament. Um, not too long ago, we hit the book of Philemon. Philemon was a very wealthy businessman that was also a very godly man. He opened up his massive house to let Christians come in and have church in his house. He was a wealthy man and a godly man. Let's look beyond that. There are the ungodly poor is the other category, category three, the ungodly poor, that these are people, Proverbs talks a lot about people that are lazy. They're not willing to work. They're not willing to get their hands dirty and try and do the right thing to earn a living. There's ungodly poor people that just drink away, waste away everything they have. In the New Testament, the prodigal son did this, that he wasted away. He was wealthy, wasted it all away, and ungodly living became ungodly poor. And we know the story of redemption there. Um, And so then there is finally the ungodly rich also. King Herod was an ungodly man that was rich. Pharaoh, an ungodly man that was rich. The New Testament, we hear, we hear the story of Jesus interacting with the rich young ruler. This is a rich man that on surface said the right stuff. He said, Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus said to him, because um, Jesus knew what was in his heart, Jesus said to him, okay, if you want to follow me, just sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. Now notice he didn't say that to everyone he interacted with. He didn't tell everyone that's the way to the kingdom. He knew that that guy's heart was married to all his wealth and possessions. So the question here, it's not, are riches right or wrong? Are they wicked or good? Riches, money, possessions are neutral. What's right or wrong is the heart of man. And if your heart, if your treasure is Jesus Christ, then your riches will show it. You, you will live in a way, once again, that if Jesus is what's most important to you, your bank account, your riches, your possessions will show that they are not what's most important to you, that Jesus is. Because the rich young ruler, when Jesus said to him, hey, come follow me after you sell everything you have and give it to the poor, it says that the rich young ruler was saddened because he had great possessions. He didn't want to let go of everything else he had. So in essence, we can look at that story and see that to him... All the stuff that he had was more valuable and more important to him than Jesus. The difference we see in the ungodly and the godly rich is that the godly use their money for kingdom purposes. They realize that they're not here for themselves. The godly know how to weigh what is truly valuable. A mature person knows how to weigh what is truly valuable. I think about the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, where he's listing off this list of all the things that he thought were what was most important. 
He's going off to how he was raised, how qualified he was to be a, a teacher of the Bible. He was going through his pedigree of how he grew up, who he studied under, all this stuff that was so important to him. And then he goes on to say, all these things I once thought were so important to me. He said, I now count them as garbage. Some translations say refuse. Some translations say dog dung. He said, all the stuff that I used to think was so important, I now consider poop. That's how valuable it is to me compared to knowing Jesus Christ. See, money, possessions, our house, our cars, the things that we have, because here's the deal. If you're sitting there today and you're thinking, well, this isn't really pertaining to me because I'm not rich. Newsflash, pretty much all of us are rich. You live in America, you eat three square meals a day, even one meal a day, you have a car, you have a phone, you have clothes, you're not wondering where your next meal is coming from. Compared to the rest of the world, friends, we are rich. Monetarily, we are rich. The reason we think we're not is because we're trying to keep up with the Joneses. We're looking at the status quo in society, and we see people who have more than us, and so we think we're not rich. But when you look at us compared to the rest of the world, guys, we are rich. So what we ought to be doing right now is use this diagnostic that James gave us to ask ourselves, which one am I? Am I the godly rich, or am I the ungodly rich? How do you tell? Well, what's most important to you? Do you find your security, your happiness, your joy, your trust in life in having money, possessions, and things? Do you feel better about yourself because you have stuff? I'm not going to stand up here and pretend I haven't wrestled with this. I remember when Katie and I were house shopping, um, and we'd looked at like 30 houses, and we were looking at our price range, and all that kind of stuff. And I remember driving by certain houses that when I saw these houses, I'd think, man, if I could just have that house, if I could afford that, man. I, and, and these are things that you'll never say out of your mouth, but they're in your heart. If you don't check your heart and look for them, is that I look at myself and then I realize, I think I would feel better about myself if I had that house. I'm not saying it's bad or wrong or sinful or wicked to have nice stuff. What is bad and wrong, sick and win, uh, sick and <laughs> wicked and sinful is when those things have your heart, when you feel complete because you got stuff. When gaining wealth, when acquiring things and finances and building your, hoarding your stuff is what matters to you most, whether you say it or not, whether you think it or not, when your actions from your heart show that, then you might be the ungodly rich. Now, I'm not trying to say, oh, you're the ungodly rich, get out of here. This ought to make you go, wait a minute, wait a minute, what, what, is, what do my finances say about me? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Like I said, Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, he breaks down all this stuff I once thought was so important. Everything that I thought mattered, I've come to realize it's dog dung compared to knowing Jesus. Because here's the deal, guys. You can lose it all like that. It can be gone like that. 
There was a fire in Sheboygan at an apartment complex on the south side this morning. Their stuff is gone like that. There's a fire in Falls. What was it, a week or two ago? That apartment complex. Their stuff is gone like that. You can lose your job like that. The stock market can crash like that. Stuff can happen like that. And if your hope, your joy, and your security is in your stuff, your money, your bank account, and your things, guys, you're in trouble because you're going to be living like this situation to situation, circumstance to circumstance. Your bank account fluctuates and you start freaking out. Why? Because that's where your hope is. It's where your security is. You feel okay because you got money. I've been there. I'm guilty. I'm not trying to just point at you. I wrestle with this. We all wrestle with this. That's why we have to fight this stuff in our hearts and check ourselves and say, is money, is possessions, is things, is, is status, are these the things that I think matter the most? I'm not going to tell you they don't matter. Of course, you need to provide for your family. Of course, you need to make a living. Of course, you need to steward your finances. But where is your heart in it? Jesus said, you can't serve both God and money. He said, you can't have two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. You can have money and make money work for you and see money as a resource and as a tool, but not as God. If your hope is in Christ, you could lose it all and still be okay because no one can take Jesus from you. People can take your money from you. Stuff can come up, things can happen, and you can lose it all, but no one can take Jesus away from you. There's some more things we're going to cover here in just a second that's going to back this up even more. Let's look at uh, chapter 5 and verse 7. Continuing on, he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door as an example of suffering and patience. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So let's pause there for a second. He says, let's be steadfast, brothers and sisters. He talks about let's be patient in suffering, enduring suffering. The thing that we see from this passage is that maturity sees with the end in mind. Maturity keeps their eyes on the prize. The maturity is a long-distance vision. The more you grow, the older you get, the more you experience, the more you mature, the more you realize it's better to make decisions off of long-term consequences, right? So when I was a little boy living in Camden, Arkansas, my, uh, my brother Jeremy and I, he was 18 months older than me, we would, every Saturday when we got our allowance, we would get on our bikes and we would ride about a mile down the street to the nearest Piggly Wiggly. We even had them down there. Can you believe it? And so we ride down to Piggly Wiggly, we take our allowance, we go in the store, and we spend it all on candy. We ride back home, we eat candy, and we are happy. Now I'm 31 years old, 
what if every two weeks I got my paycheck, I go to grocery store and spend my paycheck on candy? Every one of you goes, stupid. Right? Why would that be dumb? Because I'm older, I'm smarter, I'm more mature, I've learned that my decisions have long-term consequences. I've also learned I need my paycheck for other things than just candy. I have learned that immediate decisions or decisions for what feels good right now are not always the best decisions. That I need to think long-term. If I spent all of my paycheck right now on candy, my wife is going to go hungry. Sorry. If I spend all my money on candy... My baby that's on the way is not going to have diapers. I hear those are expensive. It is wise to think long term. In the moment, working out stinks. It's not fun, right? It hurts. It's not fun. Long term, working out is good for you. In the immediate moment, if you ask me to pick between cake and kale, I want cake. I've never wanted kale. (laughs) But if I'm making that decision according to what is best long term, I will remorsefully pass on the cake. God forbid she's going to have to help keep me accountable. I need kale. Because it's better for me long term. The older you get, I could ask every adult in here to raise your hand if you recognize it's better to make decisions according to long term. You'd all raise your hand because you've lived long enough, you've grown and you have matured and maturity causes you to recognize that it's better to live keeping your eyes on the prize, looking ahead and making decisions accordingly. What would this world be like? What would our families be like? What would our homes be like if we only did what immediately felt good or tasted good? Be a mess. I I can remember the times where my car broke down and I look at my bank account and go, oh, snap. What am I going to do? I was in trouble for a while. And uh, my wife Katie and I, we, we have habits of saving money. Um, but all the more that day, once again, when she came in and she's like, I'm pregnant, I'm like, oh, snap. Uh, all the more I was like, okay, we need to get a little more aggressive and a little more serious about saving money. Why are we doing that? Because of what we know is coming in December. Baby girl, I need more money when baby girl comes. I'm doing things, because I, I could take my paycheck straight out and go buy a brand new Taylor acoustic guitar or a brand new set of Callaway Apex irons or there's a lot of different things that I could think to immediately just spend my paycheck on. But I've grown and matured and learned it's better to use wisdom, stretch that stuff out because of what's coming ahead. As Christians... You can only live successfully as a Christian through this life if you can have eternal glasses on. You have to look to eternity. You have to keep your eyes, your gaze, your hope, your focus on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who because of the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God in the place of honor. Jesus endured the most gruesome, brutal, 
humiliating punishment ever for us because of the joy set before him. He endured because of what was before him. Not because of what it felt like. I mean, honestly, you take nails in the hand, you think that didn't make him want to say, okay, stop. Taking a crown of thorns on his head or getting beat and getting lashed, uh, getting whipped with a cat of nine tails with glass and bone, just ripping your flesh off. Those things you don't think made him want to go, stop. I changed my mind. In fact, before it happened, he was in the garden weeping, saying, God, Father, if there's any other way we can make this happen, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. If he would have been living in that moment, just living for the moment, in the moment, you know, just YOLO, live it up in the moment. I'm here in the moment now. He wouldn't have done it. But because of the joy set before him, what was ahead of him, that he was like, that is what's driving me to endure the most brutal punishment in the history of the earth. The joy. What was that joy? Fellowship with God the Father and us all together in eternity. He was able to push through it and endure because of what was ahead of him. And right here in James chapter 5, he's trying to make us think about what is ahead of us. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. And he talks about farmers, how they sow, and then the rains come, and then more rain comes, and patience, patience, finally the time of harvest comes. Guys, if you cannot keep your eyes on the prize, if you cannot continue to look to eternity as your hope, you will live an emotionally topsy-turvy life. Why? Because stuff happens. We live in a broken world. You, we will, all of us, experience suffering. Jesus himself said in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. Not you might. He didn't say if you mess up or sin. He didn't say if you tick off enough people. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And so we, knowing we're going to go through stuff, knowing we're going to face things, have to have our hope set in eternity. I have a friend who said one time, told me, if I prayed, or if, if I prayed and asked God to fix these situations in my life, and if I, if I prayed and asked for healing, and if I, if I never got that healing, and if I prayed and asked for supernatural provision from God to help me out of a fiscal problem or something like that, and he never answered that prayer, if I, if I went through this life beat up, broken down, lost just what we would consider a horrible quality of life, but I still had Jesus, I'd have everything I need. And he went on to say, and if I went through life that way and I never got any of those things, if I never had any of those things, it would still be worth following Jesus. Why? How can you say that? If your hope's here in this life, you can't say that. If your hope is in having the American dream, the perfect life with the white picket fence and the dog running through the yard, you know, like, little Timmy fell in the well. No, that's not an American dream. But if your dream is just having everything great and hunky-dory and perfect and flawless, if that's your hope, 
if that is where your security and your hope is, you're in trouble because it's not going to last forever. This earth is shaky. It's faulty. Stuff happens. That's why it's best to have our hope set in what cannot be touched, the eternal hope of Jesus Christ. When he is your treasure, no one can touch your treasure. When he is your hope, no one can touch your hope. That's why the apostles and so many others in the Bible could go through such severe persecution. How do you think the people in the Middle East that are having their heads chopped off because they believe in Jesus, how do you think they're able to say, no, I'm not wavering on what I believe? Is it because they're looking for a happy, hunky-dory life here and now? No. It's because their hope is in Jesus Christ and in eternity with him. You're confronted with losing your life because of what you believe? I guarantee you those people have authentic faith in the Lord, so much so that they're willing to lay down their life, something that most of us will probably never face. We should be thankful for that, and sometimes I'm thinking, man, that really makes an authentic faith, though. Those guys hope. It's easy for us in America to think that the perfect happy life, I believe God wants us to be happy and have joy, but that's got to be set and, root and rooted and grounded in him. If it's in things, if it's in circumstances and situations like perfect health or achieving a certain level of society status or achieving a certain level of success or acclaim, if it's in those things, you might achieve those things. You might get rich, but it's coming to an end. And we can remember it right there in the openings of this chapter, what he says to people who have their hopes there. Our hope has got to be in Jesus Christ and a mature believer, someone who's growing in their faith, someone who begins to recognize my eyes need to be locked on eternity. That's the hope, the blessed hope that our scripture talks about. It's not just hoping that God heals us or hoping that we can get that job we wanted. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Nothing wrong with praying and asking for healing. In fact, we're going to read that in a second. But your hope needs to be buried deep, deep, deep in the fact that you know Jesus Christ and will spend eternity with God. That long-term vision helps you live rightly. Let's keep reading. Verse 12, this one little nugget, kind of all by its lonesome, says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear... Now we could stop there and we could think he's talking about cussing, although we should not cuss. He says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Um, Jesus said almost this exact same thing. In fact, James is Jesus' brother. He could have been quoting him somewhat, paraphrasing. One time Jesus said, don't make any oaths or swear by heaven or anything under heaven. He said, let your yes be yes, your no be no. And he goes on to say something pretty strong. He says, anything else is from the evil one. Anything else is from the evil one. Why is that? Well, there's a few reasons. One is to say, I swear to God. It's to belittle God's name. It is to take it for granted. To just, to try and tie God's name to your 
promises as a flawed human is disrespectful. It's not honoring to God in his name. But then beyond that, okay, well, why don't we just take God out of the picture and just say, I swear, or I promise. Because maturity recognizes what things are within and without our control. And there are a lot of things that are not in our control. Last week in chapter 4, we can read where he talks about, why do you say next year we're going to move here and do this and make a profit? He says, you don't know what's going to happen next year. We should let our yes be yes and our no be no. Well, Pastor Stephen, if we do that, how are people going to know like when we mean it, you know? How are people going to know that like I'm really serious about what I'm saying right now? Well, if you live in a way where your yes is always a yes and you always back it up, then they'll know you're always serious and you mean what you say. Because let's think about this. How many times do we say like, you know, honestly, I think, so are we not being honest whenever we don't preface it with honestly? Or, oh, I promise I'm going to do this. Okay, does that mean you're not going to do everything else that you promised? That's why we should just say yes, no. Everything else is rooted in evil. Doesn't seem like it, doesn't sound like it, but it's trying to pretend that we have more control over our lives than we do. And it's also trying to take control of our lives and belittle God's name and and put us in a position where we can put different classifications on our commitments. If we say yes, it should be a yes. If it's no, it should be a no. I'm not standing here as one who's perfect and all of these things we're addressing. I have to evaluate myself also. But we should let our yes be yes and our no be no. Going on, verse 13. Here's another strand of pearl of thought. He says, if anyone among you suffering, or is anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power in its working or as it is working. Elijah was a man with nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So this last section right here, kind of covers two ideas. The biggest idea, the obvious one right up front, is prayer. The need for prayer, the call to prayer, the power of prayer. Now, if I read that passage and I said to you guys, all right, guys, we're Christians. We need to pray. We should pray. Not a single one of you is going to go, what? For real? Wait, wait, wait. That's what I didn't know. Oh, well, I didn't know we needed to pray. Ah, that's what I've been missing. Not a single one of us would go, wait a minute, we're supposed to pray? No, we all know we're supposed to pray. We all know we should pray. The difference is we don't realize that we, or, or, or acknowledge that we could. There's a difference in could and should. Could is an opportunity. Should is a requirement. Because if we don't pray as much as we should, it's because we don't realize what we could be accomplishing. He said right there in James chapter 5 that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous person works. 
It makes a big difference. So if we're not praying, there's one of two reasons. It's either one, we don't believe it works, or two, we don't realize the valuable access that we have. It's that we think that prayer either doesn't work or we don't realize that we have been invited to commune and fellowship and have relationship with the God of all creation. Like when we say that at face values, like, hey, did you know you can have relationship and fellowship and communion with the God who created everything? The God who said, let there be light and it happened. (laughs) The God who spoke and created the universe. You can know him. You can talk to him. You can hear from him. You can fellowship with him. How many of us at face value would not hear that and go, I want to pray more. But we either don't believe in that, that we really have that access. We don't see the value of relationship with the Lord. That might be one reason. The other reason is that maybe we don't believe that it works. And we can see passage after passage after passage in the Bible of people who prayed and God did miracles. Outside of scripture, I can tell you story after story after story in my life of people that I know, of situations that I've been in, where there was no answer but to pray and God came through. That there's no other situation where you can do anything except say, God did a miracle. I've heard doctor's reports before where a doctor gives report A, and I'm not against doctors. I'm fully in support of them. But where doctor said, this is the case. This is the diagnosis, and you got this much time for meh, meh, meh. And we prayed fervently. And when you go back to the doctor, and the doctor's like, so, uh, I don't know what happened, but said disease is gone, or ailment is fixed, or problem was fixed, or people who were at the end of the rope in a tough situation, like, how is this going to work out? And we prayed, and God came through. Guys, listen, just let me be the, the clanging reminder today. Prayer works. I'm talking to myself. Prayer works. We should pray more because we should and because we can. We are invited by God to talk to him, to make petition of him and requests of him Why would we not take advantage of that? Because either we don't believe it, diagnostic, or we don't realize the incredible value and access we have. So there's one huge chunk right there that we see that prayer is a huge principle in that last passage we read. The other side is maturity realizes I can't do this alone. Maturity realizes you cannot live a successful life Christian life on this broken earth without other believers by your side. You can't. There's too many trials, too many temptations, too many weaknesses that we have. We need each other. When you get down and out, when you are facing things and you start to get depressed or start to wonder, where is God? Or why am I in this situation? What's going on? Where's God? You have opportunity to start to think things that don't line up with truth that we see in Scripture. That's why we need each other, so we can come beside each other and say, hey, you know what the Scripture says. I know you're going through this, and I'm sorry. I I hate that you feel that way, but remember what the Bible says. Remember what God promised us. He said he'd never leave us or forsake us. Hey, I know you're going through this. I heard you're not feeling well. Let me pray for you. This whole passage, it says, hey, let's pray for each other. 
It goes on and it says something that's really uncomfortable. It says, let's confess our sins to one another. Sounds a lot of fun, right? Not so much. But he says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Let's just go ahead and acknowledge the elephant in the room that there's not one of us in here who's perfect, right? Not even the pastors. Although we like get a shoe into heaven, I think. But um, that's a bad joke. Don't even laugh at that. And so we all are flawed humans. We all are growing in our faith. We all are maturing. We all fail. We fail each other. We fail God. And although as we grow and mature, the goal is that we would sin less and less, all of us still sin. All of us do. We need our brothers and sisters to be able to come up to them and say, Bill, I need to talk to you. I sinned in this way. And I need to get that off my chest. I need you to hold me accountable. We need accountability. If we don't have accountability, we can go off into our own little la-la land, start believing whatever we want to believe, start acting however we want to act. We need our brothers and sisters to be able to stand beside us and go, oh, something's going on here. Or if we're convicted about our own sin, about our own issues, to be able to go, I've got to to talk to somebody about this. I've failed. I need to talk to somebody about this so they can hold me accountable. They can come up to me later and say, hey, you talked to me about this. How's that going? Or, hey, I heard about this situation in your life. Let me pray with you or pray for you. Let me check in on you. Let me help you. The scripture is full, especially the New Testament, is full of passages saying, encourage each other, be there for each other, strengthen each other, admonish each other, lift each other up. You cannot do Christianity alone. You might be able to for a little while when things are good, right? When there's no problems, when everything's going good, it's when you feel like you can do it alone. Then when stuff starts falling apart and you start facing opposition and struggle and hardship, guys, the most foolish thing you can do is isolate yourself. Where you can start entertaining thoughts that you don't want to talk to your brothers and sisters about because you know they're going to set you straight. It's better to be healthy to be sick, right? Spiritually, that's the same. If we're not healthy physically, what do we do? We try and do everything that we can to get healthy. But if we're spiritually sick, do we do what we need to do to try and get healthy? Do we confess our sins to one another? Do we pray for one another? Do we encourage each other? Do we challenge each other in love? Guys, you need me. I need you. You need the person next to you. We all need each other. You can't do it alone. You'll fall away. That last passage right there in chapter 5, he's saying, if any of you sees a brother who's falling away, who's wandering, let's go get him. Let's bring him back. doesn't say, just watch and see if they come back. He's like, if anyone brings back a wandering brother, you've saved their soul. We need each other because I don't care who you are. All of us are tempted. All of us are flawed, incomplete in our understanding. All of us need help. We need encouragement. We need edification. We need to lock arms together and walk out this faith together. It's too easy to get deceived if you're by yourself. It's too easy to buy into bad doctrine if you're by yourself. It's too easy to lose hope and get downtrodden if you're by yourself. When you've got brothers and sisters who care about you, who love you, and have fellowship and relationship with the Lord too, They're there for you when the stuff happens. When you start to get into weird ideas, they're there to say, hey, 
That, that, that doesn't line up with Scripture. When you start dabbling with sin again, they're there to say, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. No, that's, that's not godly. That's not good for you. When you get down, they're there to say, hey, remember, God's for us. Who can be against us? He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Our hope is in him. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. We need each other. This entire book of James is a letter that shows us what the overflow of grace in our life looks like. That when you've received Christ in your life, it overflows into actions. That when you have that belief in your heart, it's shown in our lives. And this growing process is just that. It's a process. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the perfect day. You're going to be growing until you're gone. You're never going to arrive until we're not in this life anymore. We need each other. We need the Word. We need the Spirit of God working in us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit wogcc.com.